And it's my honor to be able to introduce our keynote speaker to you today, Jenny Yang. A um, little bit about Jenny, she is the Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Policy at World Relief. There she provides oversight for all the advocacy initiatives and policy positions for the organization. And she leads the organization's public relations efforts. She also represents World Relief's advocacy priorities to the U.S. government and leads mobilization efforts for churches on advocacy campaigns. She's worked over a decade in refugee protection, immigration policy, and human rights, and was on an active deployment roster with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Jenny is co-author of Welcoming the Stranger and contributing author to three other books. She was named one of the 50 women to watch by Christianity Today. So we're honored and excited to have Jenny with us here today. We're going to pray, and then we're going to welcome her up. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity today to just uh, spend a little bit of time thinking and processing something that we know is on your heart, something we know that is important to you. And um, Lord, we just we recognize that all of us uh, were strangers to your kingdom, and you have made us insiders. And we just pray that you would give us that heart for those who are around us, our neighbors who are coming to our own city, to our own country from all places. We pray for Jenny today that you would give her words, that you would um, help her speak the things that are on your heart so that they would connect well with our heart today and that you would move us. We pray that she would feel welcome and that she would feel your spirit working through her today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, let's welcome Jenny Yang. Good afternoon, everyone. It is such a joy for me to be with you all today. Um, I was just sharing, actually, that this is my third time in this area, but my first time in Kansas. So I've never been to Kansas before, so it's really wonderful to be with you all. Um, the last time I was here, I actually was sharing with someone that um, I ate barbecue at Jack Stack's, and it completely changed my perspective on what barbecue actually means. And so since that first time I visited Kansas City, Everything I ate after that considered barbecue, I've always compared to the barbecue I had in this community. So that was something that was very memorable, so I, I've loved um, being able to be back here. Um, and the second thing I'll say is that right when I got off the plane, um, I felt like I was in good company because I saw tons of people with their Chiefs you know, jerseys on, and there was a, tons of diehard Chiefs fans, which is awesome because um, I am from Philadelphia, which means I am an Eagles fan. Uh, which means that I have been a diehard fan of Andy Reid for many, many years. And so because of that, I was rooting for the Chiefs when you guys were in the Super Bowl. And I was really glad not only that your team won, but that Andy Reid finally got his ring. Um, because he um, led the Eagles well, but you know we had this like love-hate relationship with him when he was coaching our team. Um, because he took us to the Super Bowl, we didn't win it, but, um, but we did win the Super Bowl a few years after that. So, um, so it's great to be with you all um, and just to be in this community to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart, but also to have a conversation with you all. And hopefully this will be a conversation, a really back and forth about why this topic of immigration is so timely, why it's so important, but more than that, why we as a church should really have this conversation seasoned with grace and with um, the, the foundation of really the Bible and scripture in leading us in our response. So when I talk about the issue of immigration, I, I just want to start off by saying that this is not a political issue for me. This is not necessarily even a policy issue for me. 
but it's a very personal issue for me. And the reason I say that is because I am the daughter of immigrants. My parents immigrated here from South Korea back in the late 1970s. And growing up, I knew what it was like to live in a bicultural home where we spoke two languages, Korean and English, where we had all kinds of delicious Korean foods, where um, you know, I always heard stories of my parents when they grew up in Korea. And that was a context that I grew up in. And so when I think about immigration and when I think about immigrants, I think about my family and I think about the community that I, that I grew up in. And it wasn't until later on in my adult life that I really started thinking about immigration as you know, a policy or as a political issue. But first and foremost for me, it has been a personal issue. And so you'll see in this photo that this is a picture of my dad. He is the guy with the white cap on his head. And this is the only picture my dad has of himself when he was a little kid. Um, and it's because he was orphaned at a very young age um, during the start of the Korean War. And he has this amazing story of how his father was a newspaper reporter. And in the beginning of the Korean War, when the communists were invading South Korea, the first people that they were targeting were media personnel. So my dad remembers hearing a knock at his door when he was just three years old the soldiers looking for my grandfather, who was a newspaper reporter, then pulling my grandfather out of the house, and my dad doesn't remember seeing him ever again after that point. Shortly after that point, it was just my grandmother and my father. And so it was desperately poor. It was in Korea at that time. It was war-torn. You know, there was not much food. There was not a lot of money or any opportunity at all. And so my grandmother became really sick, and so she died when my dad was um, age seven. And so my dad became orphaned in war-torn Korea, and he eventually went to live with his uncle. And the one thing that he knew he wanted to do was to be able to leave Korea, because there was no opportunity for him. He had no parents, he had no siblings, there was really nothing for him in Korea at that time. Now what was interesting at that time in Korea was that there were tons of American missionaries that were sending and setting up organizations in war-torn Korea to help the orphans and to help uh, the Korean community just really get out of war and be on, you know, on track to progress more, I guess, out of poverty. And so there was a school set up in my dad's community by some American missionaries, and he remembers going to that school and actually learning English, and that's what made him realize that he wanted to immigrate to the United States of America. Now, at that time, there was really not a lot of opportunity to do so. He was orphaned. Uh, but one thing he became really good at was fixing cars. And so he actually entered a national car repair competition, won first place, and one of the judges asked him if he wanted to immigrate to the United States of America with him. And so my dad eventually got sponsored by the Ford Motor Company, and he uh, settled in Philadelphia, which is where I was born and raised. And uh, my parents still live here uh, in Philadelphia to this day. And I live in Baltimore, but that's where I was born and raised. And so when I think about immigrants and the immigrant story, is really the story of my parents that has really shaped my understanding um, of you know, the immigrant narrative. My dad has a funny story because he remembers when he first got here to America, he went to the grocery store and he found um, a can of breadcrumbs and there was a picture of fried chicken on the front and he was so excited because he didn't know that fried chicken could come in a can. So he like bought the can of breadcrumbs, rushed home, opened the, like, the top, looked in, and he was like so sad that there was only breadcrumbs in that can because he thought it was fried chicken. Uh, still to this day, my parents love Popeyes and fried chicken, but it was just a funny story of my parents, you know, the cultural expectations of what it was like being at an American grocery store. 
Um, and I love sharing the story of my father and even this one photo of my dad because this is the only picture that my dad has when he was a child, as I mentioned before. And that's compared to the over 10,000 pictures I have on my iPhone of my two boys who are six and three. And so I am that person that has to delete my apps every week because I don't have enough storage on my phone to take more pictures of my two boys. But I always think about that because I always think about what it was like for my dad to not even have any photographs of himself as a little child. And I don't even know what my grandfather and my grandmother look like because my dad doesn't have really any records of that moment. So my, my father has this pretty unique story of, of living in poverty, of having lived through a war. His dad was persecuted in the war, was literally killed. Um, and these are the stories that are really hard for my father to share. Now, for my own dad, he had an opportunity to be sponsored by Ford and to immigrate to, these, to the United States of America. But for a lot of people like my father, who are younger children or um, are experiencing the effects of war, for many of them, they live through that war, but oftentimes don't really have opportunities to go to places where they can actually find safety. And so right now, in 2022, we are what considered, we're living through the world's worst displacement crisis in recent history. That means that there are more people displaced now in 2022 than there were right after World War II. Now, when we think about World War II, we remember that war, right? We remember the countries that were involved in fighting that war. We remember the massive numbers of those who were displaced throughout Europe and other parts of the world. But right now, it means that there are more people displaced now in the world than there were right after that war. And that may be a surprising fact to all of us. And the reason for that is because when you look at places around the world, whether it's in Burma, or whether it's in, um, in Syria, in Iraq, and even in Afghanistan, we see that there are conflicts that are lasting a lot longer than there are political solutions for, and that a lot of these individuals are fleeing into places where they have to live their entire lives oftentimes in that, as a refugee, as someone who has fled their home and sought safety somewhere else. When I was in um, Jordan uh, several years ago, I met some uh, Syrian refugees, and I remember their stories because several of the families that I met would show me the keys to their house because they thought that when they left in the middle of the night that they would be able to go back to their homes after several months or maybe even a year. The Syrian war now is in its 10th year, which means that many of these individuals that were anticipating going home after just a few months or even a year are now becoming refugees for almost a decade of their life. And in fact, the United Nations estimates that on average, a refugee will live in a refugee camp for 17 years, which means that for a lot of young children that are born as a refugee in these camps, that that's all they know, that that's their entire existence. And so right now, as we think about the world that we live in, the fact that there's so many people around the world that are refugees, the question becomes, you know, what are we going to do to respond and how should we even start thinking about some of these numbers? Well, I think one thing that I think we should all be aware of is the fact that for many of these refugees that are fleeing violence and conflict around the world, that they're not coming to the United States of America. These are individuals that are fleeing immediately across the border to the country that surrounds their, their country that is in conflict. So, for example, if you are living in Syria and you're fleeing the war there, you're oftentimes fleeing into Jordan or into Turkey, but there aren't many Syrian refugees that are coming into the United States of America. In fact, it's a very, very small number. 
And so for the majority of those who are being forced to flee their homes because of war, they're actually going into their local communities and oftentimes the country that is receiving them is a country that is underdeveloped itself. So when I was in Jordan, as I mentioned before, this is a country where around 20% of its population is made up of refugees. Imagine that, 20% of the population. So let's say in the United States of America that Canada were to erupt into a civil war, which I know is pretty hard to imagine because we can, we probably never think of Canada as being, you know, non-peaceful, I would say. But let's imagine that Canada were to erupt into a civil war and all Canadians were to come into the United States of America and a third of the population of Mexico were to come into the United States of America. That's exactly what Jordan is dealing with right now when 20% of their population is made up of refugees, either from Syria or Iraq. And so the reason I highlight this is because as we think about the global refugee crisis, yes, we are seeing a record number of people that are displaced around the world. At the same time, it's important to remember that the majority of these refugees are being hosted by their neighboring countries, and these countries are already themselves oftentimes very poor or developing, generally speaking, as well. You know, I think for many of us in the United States, this issue of forced migration and of refugees really hit home for us when, in August when we saw what was happening in Afghanistan. Uh, now, this was a time when uh, the president, um, president, the previous president had committed to pulling out uh, the, the presence of U.S. troops, and then this president um, fell through on that and actually pulled out our U.S. troops. And during that time, there was absolute chaos in Kabul. There were these images that we saw of, of Afghans clinging to U.S. military um, aircrafts as they were wanting to leave Afghanistan because they knew the consequences of what it would be like to live under Taliban rule. In fact, when we saw those images, we knew that 20 years ago when the Taliban had actually ruled, that they didn't allow women to go to school. And in fact, they persecuted Christians, they persecuted other religious minorities, and it was, and they specifically targeted Afghans that specifically had actually helped our U.S. troops and were translators and interpreters for U.S. troops during that time. Uh, so we at World Relief, uh, we are a Christian humanitarian relief and development organization that works overseas and in the U.S. to resettle refugees. We're getting hundreds of calls a day from desperate Afghans that were pleading with us to be able to escape during that time. I remember in the middle of the day, um, I got a call from uh, a father who lived in North Carolina. He was an Afghan gentleman, but his wife and two U.S. citizen children were stuck in Kabul at that time. Um, and so he called me because his wife and his two young children, because they didn't have the father figure with them, needed a military escort to get them to the airport because, because the woman was by herself, she was going to be a target for the Taliban because she didn't have a man with her. And so we got a military escort for this young mother and her two children. We got to the airport, but she couldn't get into the airport. So for 10 hours during the day, she waited in order to be, uh, um, get permission to go into the airport to get evacuated. And when she didn't get in, she was crushed by the crowds. She fainted, and we had to bring her back to the safe house. And for over two days, I was talking to the husband almost every day that, that was during that time because he was desperate to make sure that his wife eventually were, was able to get out. And it wasn't until the senators from North Carolina and the White House actually intervened that we were able to get permission for this woman to eventually go into the airport with her two young U.S. citizen children and be evacuated to come into the United States of America. Now, this picture on the right is a photo that you may have seen where 
our U.S. military had a choice to make in which they were leaving Kabul airport and it was a cargo plane, so they weren't supposed to have more than maybe a couple hundred people in that military aircraft at that time. But when there were so many Afghans that were wanting to leave, um, many of them um, having translated for U.S. troops and felt like they were directly threatened by the Taliban, um, the, the pilots of that U.S. military aircraft made a difficult decision. Maybe it wasn't a difficult decision, but they made a courageous decision um, to actually load up the plane with as many Afghans as possible and eventually evacuate them out of Kabul. Um, later on, when uh, the pilots and the, the carriers of the aircraft were interviewed, they were all members of our U.S. military, they said that this was a moral decision for them because they could have uh, closed the doors and only let a couple a hundred Afghans in, but they felt a moral obligation to do everything they could to save as many lives as possible. And that's when they started to really open the doors and let as many people in as possible. And so since that time, um, this is what crystallized perhaps the refugee crisis for all of us. When we knew that these were people who were going to live in a very desperate situation, whose lives were directly threatened because of their association oftentimes with the United States, and who were being evacuated in large numbers at that time. Now, when we look at that scenario in August, we know that there was over 100,000 Afghans that were actually eventually evacuated. And many of them actually went to places in Europe and Australia and in Asia, um, but around 80 to 90,000 of these individuals actually ended up in the United States of America. And many of them actually are coming here to this community um, right here in the Kansas City area. Uh, and I believe we have an opportunity to respond as a church community. In fact, you'll see from this map here that every state in the United States is receiving Afghan refugees, uh, except for Wyoming and South Dakota, and that's because they don't resettle refugees. But in every other state in the United States, including in Hawaii and Alaska, we are going to see large numbers of Afghan refugees. Um, a few months ago when I was traveling to North Carolina, um, I actually ran into some of these Afghan refugees myself, and um, I will tell you that the majority of these individuals literally left with nothing, uh, that they only had a one or two bags that they carried as they fled, and as they arrive here, they are really looking for friendship and for community and for resources to really help them integrate as they arrive here to the United States of America. But I talked about the numbers and about the millions of these individuals and even thousands of, of individuals, but it's not just about the millions, it's really ultimately about the one, about the one refugee and their individual story. And so I wanna share with you the story of Mustafa, um, who was a young gentleman that was resettled to Baltimore City uh, several years ago. So Mustafa um, is a refugee from Syria who basically, um, was at a medical appointment in high school, at a doctor's appointment, when a bomb fell in his high school and three of his closest friends passed away. Now, thankfully, he himself was at the medical appointment, but after that incident, he fled across the border into Turkey, where he lived with his family, and he was eventually resettled to Baltimore, where I, became, I got to know him. Um, you'll see in this picture, it's a picture of him in front of, uh, in front of Whole Foods because that was the first job he got when he landed in the United States. He said he loved working at Whole Foods and he actually saved up all of his money that he got from working at Whole Foods to actually go to the local Anne Arundel Community College to become an architect, which was actually his dream. Um, and as I got to know him in Baltimore City, what was fascinating to me was that he grew up culturally Muslim, 
But he started telling me that he cannot believe in the God of Islam anymore because he could not believe that the God of Islam would do this to his closest friends, uh, the friends that he had lost during the bombing in Syria. And he was grieved because he knew he couldn't reconcile the fact that he was living in the United States and yet his friends had, had been killed by the bombing in Syria. Um, he hung a Syrian flag on his wall in his bedroom. Um, and while grateful for being in the United States of America, he constantly thought about what life was like for him and uh, the rest of his community back in Syria as well. And he felt like he was one of the lucky ones. Now I share the story of Mustafa because I think it's really important as we talk about the refugee crisis and about our change in communities that we don't generalize the numbers and think about refugees as a mass of people or as statistics or just as numbers because each of these numbers represents an individual with an individual story and an individual opportunity I believe we as followers of Jesus have to interact with them and to get to know them and to get to know the work that God is even doing in their lives to bring them to know himself. And so people like Mustafa, even people like my parents who immigrated here, are making up the immigrant population in the United States of America. And if you see from this map here, what we see is that uh, by the year 2060, um, the large majority of the United States will no longer be a predominantly white community anymore, which means that um, over 50% of the population in the United States of America will be non-Anglo-Saxon, I should say. And so when I show this map, I want to ask you, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel scared? Does it make you feel anxious? Does it make you feel uncomfortable? Does it make you feel happy and joyful? And I ask you that question because this is the reality regardless of even continued ongoing immigration to the United States because of the current birth rates within the broader immigrant population in the United States of America. Um, and the reason I want to ask you these questions about how it makes you feel is because I think it is fully acceptable and even um, understandable that many of us maybe do feel uncomfortable because whenever there is change, especially demographic or cultural change, sometimes it does make us feel uncomfortable. But I also want to make sure that we understand the historical context in which we're talking about as a country. Because uh, many years ago in the 1750s, uh, during the founding of our country, we know that who is an American or who makes up um, you know, a, a person who lives in this country was hotly debated during the founding of our country. So for example, you'll see these two quotes by Benjamin Franklin and by George Washington. And in 1751, Benjamin Franklin said this. He said, why should immigrants establish their language and manners to the exclusion of ours? Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens who will surely be so numerous as to change us instead of our anglifying them, and will never adopt our language or customs any more than they can acquire our complexion. Now, Benjamin Franklin at that time was referring to German immigrants that he felt like were invading Pennsylvania at that time. Now, how many of you all have some kind of German ancestry? Okay, so a large, did you guys know that there was this backlash against German immigrants when they first came here? And the reason why Benjamin Franklin was uh, uh, castigating German immigrants was because not only could they not speak English, they spoke German, but he at that time felt like they didn't have the right skin tone. He thought that their complexion was gonna be a problem because they were coming into the United States of America. Now, if you ask me right now, I could not tell the complexion difference between someone who's English or someone who's German, 
But back in the 1750s, that was a huge problem. And he specifically referenced it when he talked about what should make up the United States of America. Now, what's interesting a few years after that is that George Washington, our founding uh, president, um, was addressing a group of Irish immigrants. And this is what he said. He said, the bosom of America is open to receive not only the opulent and respectable stranger, but the oppressed and persecuted of all nations and religions whom we shall welcome to participate to all of our rights and privileges if by decency and propriety of conduct they appear to merit employment. What he's saying that it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. What matters is that you work hard and that you basically earn the right to stay in this country because of your, your work ethic, right? And so back even in the founding of the United States of America, this conflict between who was welcome here, whom we should welcome, who constitutes an American, was vividly debated. And the reason why I bring up this historical precedent for all of us is, number one, because I think the own internal conflicts and conversations we have is nothing new. In fact, it was something that our founding fathers debated. But at the same time, I think it's really important as we think about new waves of immigrants that are coming to this country that many of our own families and our own ancestors experienced the same discrimination, the same backlash, the same discomfort that many of the people and new waves of immigrants today perhaps are experiencing as well, even though they're probably fleeing for the same very reasons that made our ancestors come into this country in the first place as well. And so when you look at the successive waves of immigrants that came into the United States, not only was it the German immigrants that faced some backlash in the beginning, and even Irish immigrants that came in, but there was a backlash against them because they, they um, were coming from Ireland, which was desperately poor, but there was a sense that they were Catholic as well. They weren't Protestant. And so there was a threat that Protestants felt like that the Irish were going to constitute um, when they came into this country as well. And many years later, uh, the Congress actually passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, which also excluded the Chinese from immigrating, immigrating to the United States of America. That was actually in the books and was uh, our law for about 60 years. And what was interesting about the Chinese Exclusion Act was that Congress literally found that the Chinese were intellectually inferior to uh, the US population. And that was the, the research basis by which they actually passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. And that is actually in congressional code, if you go back and research this, um, that made them want to exclude the Chinese um, from being able to immigrate to the United States. And so it wasn't until the 1920s when our Congress actually said, well, let's just exclude immigrants from certain areas of the world. And they passed what's called the National Origins Quota Act which actually closed off immigration from many parts of the world, except for Western Europe. And um, it was really the first requirement for anyone to come into the United States with a visa. Um, and the reason I, I talk about this act as, as something that's very important is because a lot of times I get the question, well, the people of today should immigrate the legal way, just like my ancestors did. But that's like comparing apples and oranges, because before 1924, there was actually no illegal way to come here. If your ancestors came from Germany or from Ireland or from other parts of Europe or Asia or, or other parts um, of the world, if they came and landed foot in the United States, the majority of them were able, to, the vast majority actually were able to come into the United States without any problems. In fact, when you look at the historical record in Ellis Island, what you'll find is that over 90% of immigrants that were processed through Ellis Island actually came in without any problems at all. 
the small percentage of individuals that couldn't, weren't allowed permission to enter through Ellis Island were people with medical issues um, or with um, contagious diseases that they quarantined and basically would not allow them to come into the United States of America. And it wasn't until 1965 when our country at that time was at the height of the civil rights discussion when our elected officials and even our country started asking the questions, well, if we're debating civil rights in this country and whether or not you know, African-Americans and others should enjoy full rights, well, we can't have immigration laws that exclude people based on where they're coming from. We can't have immigration laws that basically shut off all kinds of immigration from parts of Eastern Europe or even parts of Asia and only allow people from Western Europe to come into the United States. And that's when Congress actually passed the Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965, which is actually the basis of our immigration laws today. And what Congress said is that instead of saying we prefer people from a certain country to come into the United States, what we will allow is a system that allows for individuals that either have a family member in the United States or a job to be able to immigrate into the United States of America. And that, again, is a foundation for which our immigration system exists today. If you have a family member in the US or you have a job, those are the legal avenues through which you can come into the United States of America. And so that is our current system today. If you have a job, it's called the blood, sweat, and tear system. Blood is your family, sweat is a job, um, and tears is actually the humanitarian carve-outs, the programs that we have where if you are fleeing persecution, you're allowed to come into the United States either as a refugee or um, as an asylum seeker today. And so I talk about the history of immigration to the United States and even the context of our current immigration laws because I think it's important for us as Americans to understand the historical precedent to which we are, are talking about immigration in this moment. And there's a lot of controversial questions about who immigrants are and why they're here, but I think I wanna make sure that even as we understand the history of immigration to the United States, that we also frame and, and really ground our response in the Bible. Because if we could get our history right and all the facts about immigration right, but we had the wrong theology, or we don't even think about immigration through a biblical lens, then I think we're gonna end up in the wrong position. But if we, as followers of Jesus, can ground our response in what the scripture actually teaches us, then I believe we will have a firm foundation to really engage this conversation around immigration in a way that brings light instead of heat to the conversation. And so I would really challenge us to think about immigration in this way. I want to, cha I want to challenge us to think about immigration first as a biblical issue, Secondly, as a church issue, and thirdly, as a missional issue. First, why is immigration a biblical issue? Well, I grew up in a Korean Presbyterian church in Northwest Philadelphia, and I read the Bible through and through. I knew all, of my, all my Bible nursery songs as a little kid, and it wasn't until I started working at World Belief and I started thinking about immigration that I went back to the Bible and I started saying, well, what does the Bible actually have to say about migration? And when I started reading from Genesis to Revelation, what I found is that the whole biblical narrative is a story about migration. The whole story of scripture is actually a story about people who are constantly moving from one place to another. And so what you see is that God moves people for his missional purposes in the world. That God intentionally allows people to leave their homes and to cross borders and to go to other places 
so that people could actually come to know him. The first person I can think of who's an immigrant in scripture is Abraham. He's the father of all nations. He's a father of our faith, right? Well, in his story, what we see is that God called him to leave his home and to go to another land that God would show him. Now, Abraham, in obeying God, he didn't know where he was going or how he was going to get there. But the fact that he left his home and went to the place that God wanted him to go was a testament to his faith in God. And the fact that God provided for him and Sarah when they went there is a testament to the fact that God used his migration story to prove to Abraham that he was with him and that he was going to provide for him wherever he went. The other person I can think of scripture who is an immigrant is Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his brothers and crossed borders as a slave. Now, he is a biblical victim of human trafficking because he was enslaved, and yet it was through that experience of being a migrant, of being a slave, that allowed God to use him to actually save the nation of Israel from famine. Another person I can think of in scripture is Ruth. She's probably one of the great love stories of scripture, right? She was gleaning the fields when Boaz noticed her as a migrant worker, and he noticed her work ethic. He noticed the fact that there was a foreigner working in his fields, and he fell in love with her because of the way that she worked and her studiousness, or, and her work ethic, I should say. And so Ruth is another example of an immigrant in scripture. But perhaps one of the greatest and the greatest immigrant of all is Jesus himself. Now, he is an immigrant on two levels because I think he's a celestial immigrant in that he left the realms of heaven and immigrated downward to earth. Um, but he's also an actual immigrant in that uh, he was actually a refugee as a little baby. Now, we all just celebrated Christmas in which we had the nativity scene of perhaps the three wise men and Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. And a lot of us don't have the figure of King Herod, even though he was a central figure in the Christmas story. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that, but many of us remember in the Christmas story that right when Jesus was born, that Mary and Jesus had to go into Egypt in order to save his life. And if they didn't do that, he was going to be killed off by an edict by King Herod that all Jewish babies under the age of two were to be killed off. And so Jesus intimately knows what it feels like to not have a home, to be born into a time of political insecurity, and to not have a safe place to even be a baby himself. And so when we follow Jesus, I want us to remember that we're actually followers of a Middle Eastern refugee. That when we follow Jesus and we understand the words that he teaches us in the New Testament, it's, we understand that he identifies with a stranger because he himself knows what it feels like to be a stranger. Now, I talked about the major biblical characters, a lot of them who are immigrants of scriptures, but I also want us to remember that when you look at the teachings of the Old Testament, that the word for ger is actually immigrant, and it's mentioned 92 times in the Old Testament alone. In fact, what you see, for example, in Leviticus 19 is that it says, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner of residing among you must be treated as one of your native born Love them as yourself, for you are foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And you see that immigrants are oftentimes pulled alongside the poor, the widow, and the orphan as people who are particularly vulnerable because they didn't have family, they didn't have spouses, they didn't have communities to really help take care of them in their need. 
And so God commanded the nation of Israel that these were the groups of people that you should pay particular attention to because these were the people, if you show them love and mercy, that's actually a direct reflection of my character as well. And so you see throughout the Old Testament that God groups these people together, the Gur, the immigrant, because he wants the nation of, of Israel to make sure that there is justice and mercy provided for these individuals. So for example, in Deuteronomy 18, it says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. Or in Malachi 3, 5, it says, I will be quick to testify against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive aliens of justice. Now, if these are the things that God himself does, where he defends the cause of these groups of particularly vulnerable people, where he watches over the alien, where he does not oppress, and where he testifies against those who try to defraud these individuals, if these are actions that God himself does, then I believe these are actions that we should reflect in our leadership in the church as well, that we need to defend, that we need to speak up for, that we should not oppress, that we should watch over these individuals that God himself commanded the nation of Israel to do in the Old Testament as well. And I believe when we do these very things that God commanded the Israelites to do, that we are reflecting God's character into the world, into a broken world as well. What's interesting about the Old Testament is not only that he exhibited specific characteristics of care and welcome, but he actually legislated laws and rules to ensure that the Israelites did not forget to neglect to care for these individuals. So for example, in Deuteronomy 24, it says, when you are harvesting your field um, and you overlook a sheath, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless and the widow, and that Lord may God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless and the widow. I was talking with a rabbi actually at one time and he said, you know, it's interesting because when you read the Old Testament, more than loving your mother or more than loving your father, it's loving the stranger that is more oftentimes commanded for the nation of Israel. And the reason for that, again, is because God has a special concern for these groups of people. And so you see again and again this idea of God's of God's uh, concern for these groups of very vulnerable people. And you see this idea carried out not just in the Old Testament, repeated throughout these commandments, but also in the New Testament as well. You know, the word for love of stranger is philoxenia. So philo is love and xenia is stranger, philoxenia. The opposite of philoxenia is xenophobia. It's a fear of the stranger. And this idea of biblical hospitality and love for the stranger is actually mentioned in the New Testament as well. It says in Hebrews 13:2, do not forget to entertain strangers or philoxenia, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. And in fact, in Matthew 25, it says, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me. Um, I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. There's this idea that we are supposed to love a stranger in tangible acts of hospitality. And so this is not just an issue that's biblical, but I believe that this is an issue that is impacting the church as well. You know, when I started working at World Relief many years ago, I started getting calls from many pastors around the country that were asking us as an organization, you know, I found out that there are these immigrants in my community who are undocumented and I don't know what to do, you know, how can I help them? You know, they're coming into my church community, what can I do? And, 
you know, there are some questions around legal issues, but there are questions around ministry issues, like can I baptize them? Or um, I had this, I was in one college ministry, um, and this was an unfortunate incident in which um, a youth pastor found out that a, a young immigrant kid in his congregation was undocumented, um, and instead of pastoring this, this kid, he ended up calling the government officials at ICE um, and like reporting this kid to the authorities. And um, it was like shocking to all of us because instead of you know, caring for the spiritual needs of, his, of this individual, he chose to have you know, the, the law kind of supersede that responsibility. And I think that was kind of a shocking moment for me as I thought about the challenges that you know, immigration issues present within their broader church as well. But I do want to say this. That I mentioned before that I believe that God uses migration for his great omission of purposes, and that is really carried out in what you see in the scriptural narrative as well. You know, in Matthew 28, it says that Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations. What this means is that the fact that there's people from many cultures and different languages and many nations coming right here into Can the Kansas City area and, and Kansas in general, it's not an accident that this is happening. In fact, last night I was really excited I was um, yelping, you know, the best barbecue places to eat in the city. And after, you know, uh, Jack's Dax and Joe's and all these other places, I started getting, you know, Vietnamese restaurants and a Thai restaurant as like the top 10 places to eat in Kansas City. And it just uh, goes to show that this community is becoming more diverse. And some of the best places to eat is not just Kansas City barbecue, but it's now these, you know, ethnic communities of Vietnamese and, and Thai restaurants that are cropping up as well. And I just want to encourage you to say that it is not an accident that this diversity is happening right here in your community. But God says that he is orchestrating the movement of people so that people can come to get to know him. In fact, Acts 17, it says, From one man God made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them in the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. When God commands us to make disciples of all nations, it doesn't mean just crossing the borders and being a missionary overseas. What this means is that we can meet the nations without ever having to leave our own backyards. The nations, friends, are coming into Kansas. The nations, friends, are coming into Missouri. The nations are coming right into our own communities, and we have an incredible opportunity, not just to share the gospel with these newcomers, but to receive the gospel to them, with them as well. And isn't this what the Great Commission is all about? That we can reach the nations for Christ without ever having to leave our own backyards. In fact, I believe that we can fulfill the Great Commission to make all disciples of all, to make disciples of all nations and carry out the Great Commandment to love our neighbors as ourselves when we love our immigrant neighbors. We can actually do both. You know, missiologist J.D. Payne said this. He said that something is missionally malignant whenever we are willing to make great sacrifices to travel for the world to reach a people group, but are not willing to walk across the street. Friends, I believe right here in this community, we have an incredible opportunity to share the good news with many of our immigrant neighbors who may, or may be coming from communities that had never heard the gospel before. You know, a few years ago, we did a study at Royal Belief where we mapped out all the nationalities of the refugees that were just coming into the United States of America. And what we found is that there were refugees that were coming from Burma and Iraq and Somalia and Ukraine and Bhutan. And these are places in which there is not a large Christian majority. These are places in which it is very, very difficult to be a Christian. 
to, to pastor a church, to, to proclaim your faith. These are places in which persecution of Christians is oftentimes very rampant. But the fact that many of these individuals were per being persecuted in these countries and are now coming into the United States of America means that many of these individuals are actually encountering Christians for the very first time. And as they encounter Christians and followers of Jesus, perhaps as they see churches for the very first time, what is it, what should be their response? And how do you think they should should uh, to meet a Christian. And my hope and my encouragement to all of us is that it is my hope that these individuals that meet flowers of Jesus for the very first time will feel a sense of love and of belonging and of welcome so that they can truly understand the love of Christ for them, the love of Christ for all nations and for all people. You know, Dr. Timothy Tennant, who is the president of Asbury Theological, said this, of Theological Seminary, said this. He said, 86% of the immigrant population in North America are likely to either be Christian or become Christian. That's far above the national average. The immigrant population actually presents the greatest hope for Christian renewal in North America. This group that we want to keep out is actually the group that we most need for spiritual transformation. We shouldn't see this as something that threatens us. We should see this as a wonderful opportunity. And I could not agree with him more. There's a pastor that we met at World Belief, Pastor Saeed, who pastors a church in Jordan. And he said that for over 10 years, he prayed for spiritual revival in the Middle East. For over 10 years. And he had this very small church in Jordan. And he would pray and pray and pray. And during the start of the Syrian refugee cri uh, the crisis, when a lot of Syrian refugees were coming into Jordan, he said he started opening up the church doors, and even with the small Jordanian church, started ministering to the Syrian refugees that were coming into his church. And one by one, he was able to share the gospel with these Syrian refugees, many of these refugees who have never heard the gospel before. And as they did that, he said that many of them were being baptized, and they were you know, becoming his members of this church, and his church that was for the Jordan community actually became a, a church of Syrian refugees. And he told us that his prayer for revival in the Middle East was being answered by the Syrian refugees that were coming into the community. That his answer to spiritual revival was actually happening through refugees and through migration, because many of these Syrian refugees that never would have heard the gospel before in Syria, now as refugees were coming into Jordan and hearing the gospel because he was being faithful, to open the doors, to welcome these refugees, and to proclaim the gospel to them. You know, I believe that migration is not just changing the face of our country, it is literally changing the face of Christianity. When we talk about immigration, when we read the news, when we see the numbers, I really hope that we as a church community don't just see this as a numbers game or a statistics game or as a political game, but we really see this as a missional opportunity to express the love of Christ to people who live right here in our own neighborhoods. Because I believe that's exactly what Jesus did and that's exactly what Jesus commands us to do. So I wanna conclude by encouraging all of us, you know, what can we do as a Christian community, as a church community, to really engage on this topic in a way that really brings people to know, uh, to know Christ? Um, and before I do that, I just wanna share another quick story as well. Um, so our World Belief Office in Nashville um, also, um, encountered a large number of Bhutanese refugees. And uh, normally people from Bhutan are predominantly Buddhist. And so when we started getting to know them, um, they were you know, very strong on their Buddhist beliefs. And when we partnered with local churches in Nashville to welcome them, there's one church in Nashville that started showing them the Jesus video. 
And so these Bhutanese refugees started seeing the Jesus video, and in one church service, they baptized over 70 Bhutanese refugees in their church service. And after that baptism service, the Bhutanese refugees told their national um, hosts, um, saying, hey, don't pick up the Bhutanese refugees at the airport anymore, because we're going to do it. And as soon as we pick them up, we're going to transport them to their houses and show them the Jesus video, because we want them to be converted and to hear the gospel, and we want to baptize them in the name of Christ. And so the Bhutanese refugees in Nashville have become our most fervent believers who really are so evangelistic in their ways and really have used this opportunity because they are so on fire for the gospel to share the news with their fellow uh, Bhutanese that are coming across uh, the oceans to come into the United States of America as well. And so I really want to encourage us and conclude with this. Um, this is an incredible opportunity. We are living in the world's worst refugee crisis right now, where it's not just a crisis happening over there, but it's, it's, these are people that are actually coming right here into our own communities. We have an incredible opportunity not just to be, sit back and be comfortable, but to engage in ways that can allow us to participate in God's mission in the world. And what an incredible opportunity we have to meet Afghans and to meet Syrians and Bhutanese and others who can tell us about what it is like to experience God in a culture in their own language and in their own ways. And so I would encourage us, as we think about sharing the gospel, that we also have an opportunity to receive the gospel as well. That we have an opportunity to understand from people who may have been persecuted Christians even, what it was like for them to follow Jesus in a very difficult environment, even as much as we're sharing the gospel as well. And so I would encourage us, with the acronym please, P-L-E-A-S-E. -E. So P is prayer. I think given the conflicts that we see around the world and the refugee crisis that we're in, we have a responsibility to pray. We should pray for our president and for elected officials and for our church communities and for ourselves in our own heart. But it's really important that we pray um, without ceasing, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Um, I also think it's really important to listen, to listen to the stories of refugees and immigrants themselves to have their perspectives and their experiences shape our understanding of what's happening in the world, that it's important that our experiences and our thoughts aren't just uh, formed by the news articles that we're reading or the news platforms that we listen to, but really by the, the stories of individuals themselves that are being impacted by, by various policies as well. Um, so prayer, listening, and E, education. Um, there are some great resources in the back. Um, the I Was a Stranger bookmark. I know many of us, maybe it's the new year, are start starting a new Bible reading plan. Well, if you pick up a bookmark in the back, stick it in your Bible and use those 40 verses of scripture to pull your heart back to what the Bible actually says about what it means to welcome a stranger. And so that's a great resource to do that as well. Um, another part of education is just picking up some books. Maybe you all have a New Year's resolution to read a couple new books. Um, the Welcoming Stranger book is the book that I co-authored with Matthew Sorens. That's available, I think, here or on Amazon. And No Longer, Str no Longer Strangers is a book that was co-written by various um, church leaders and ministry partners that talk about what it means from their perspectives to welcome a stranger as well. And A is for advocacy. Um, all of us have a responsibility to be stewards of our voice and our resources. But uh, a lot of us are engaged politically and uh, with our elected officials. And I think it is really important as we think about welcoming the stranger that we don't just do it on a ministry level in, in our communities, but we ensure that the policies of our state governments, of our federal governments, continues to welcome those who are extremely vulnerable. 
And so there are plenty of opportunities to continue to advocate with us, with your elected officials. Um, I know many of you, maybe in August, when you saw the images of what was happening in Afghanistan, maybe you called your senator and said, hey, you know, like, what's going on? Can we continue to make sure that we're helping Afghans? But all of that, your voice, your political engagement, continues to be important to make sure that our values are also reflected in our laws and the policies that impact those that we care about as well. And the last two things I would encourage us to do is just to serve and also evangelism. You know, there are plenty of opportunities to serve, whether it's through your local community, your local church, there's tons of ministries in this area that would love to have you volunteer with them, but serving is obviously something that I think that we can all do. And lastly, evangelism. I shared about this before, but when we enter into relationships with our immigrant neighbors, brothers and sisters, it's not an opportunity to just share the gospel to people who may, who may have never met a Christ follower before, but it's an opportunity to receive the gospel as well from people who are experiencing God in different parts and cultures around the world. So with that, I want to conclude by just saying um, at World Relief, we don't believe that the church should just be about creating a place to live, that we should ultimately be about creating a place to belong. You know, I think all of us long for a sense of belonging, of an inclusion, and for people who have gone through so much trauma and suffering to come into this community, that we really have a responsibility to create a sense of belonging to individuals who really have oftentimes no friendships and communities to welcome them as they get here. I think this is an incredible opportunity we have as a church to step up to this opportunity at really what I think is a historic moment for our country and for our generation. And so I hope with that, we will continue to engage and I look forward to the continued conversation today. So thanks everyone. Um, yeah, it's really a joy to be with you all. So we're going to jump into some questions. And so Jenny, Carla, Jarrett, feel free to just jump in uh, as you guys feel ready and are comfortable. So first question, can you, so Jenny, you'd shared the importance of viewing the, the issues of immigration and refugees from a biblical perspective, first and foremost, as followers of Jesus. So often, uh, research shows that the only 12% of evangelical Christians have their views about immigration refugees formed by the scriptures. And so can you share an example of a position or view that a Christian can have about immigration that is faithful to scripture and socially, economically, nationally responsible? So it's kind of a blending, because they're not mutually exclusive, so how yeah. can we see those together? Yeah, I think that's a really wonderful question. So thanks to whoever uh, sent in that question. So I oftentimes think that there's competing narratives in the immigration conversation. There's, well, you know, you have to secure the border and crack down on, you know, unauthorized immigration. And the other is, well, you, you have to show compassion to immigrants. And as Rhi was mentioning, I don't think these are mutually exclusive. I think we can actually do both. Uh, and so I think the main principles and values that we have is we have to recognize the needs of our economy and the needs of families to be together and really have an immigration system that reflects those needs, right? And so when I mentioned before that when Congress passed our immigration laws, it was to allow people who want to be with family or to work, blood, sweat, and tears to be able to come here, I think those are still values that we need to have in our current immigration system. But when you look at our immigration laws today, it is actually not responsive to those needs. And so when you look at the laws today of how many people are allowed to come into our country to work, it is very, very, very limited. And so there's only several thousand visas available for low-skilled immigrants um, to come here and work. 
where the majority of those who come into work in our country have to be highly skilled. So you have to have money to invest in the economy, you have to be a software engineer, and that's where it's weighted towards. And so I would say that, generally speaking, we have to close the back door, open the front door, and allow those who are here without documentation to earn legalization. And so, um, again, I would emphasize the fact that I think you know we do need border security. I think we should continue to support our border um, agents and others that are doing hard work along the border to um, to make sure that our border is secure. But at the same time, if we're going to do that, we have to have legal avenues through which immigrants can actually come. And so, when we don't have those legal avenues, it makes the job of our border patrol agents and others that are trying to enforce the law very, very, very hard. And so close the back door, open the front door, and then allow those who are here without authorization to earn legalization in some way. And so I think that's somewhat of a balanced way, not just to say we need to open the borders, um, but then I think we need to, to secure the border, I think, but we also need to have a more flexible immigration system and then recognize the fact that for many millions of people that are here without authorization, there has to be a way within our current laws right now um, to allow these individuals um, to correct their status, but right now there's no way for them to do that. That's really helpful, yeah. I, that, even just that little phrase, open the front door, close the back door, that's just a helpful way to even mm -hmm. kind of remember how you're framing that, thank mm -hmm. you. Mm -hmm. Jared Carlin, anything you guys yeah. want to add to that? I, I can jump in on that one a little bit too, and I think even just the video and the part that I was sharing here at the end just kind of demonstrates that the economic impact of immigration is a positive, um, especially if we're talking about um, neighborhoods like mine. And this is not just our neighborhood, but it's across the country. Um, cities are benefiting from immigrants who are coming in. And so a lot of times, those immigrants currently, um, there may be a portion of those who are undocumented or who may be dreamers and who are here and working legally with DACA. So one, one specific example would be um, you know, a pathway to citizenship for DACA recipients, which would allow them to be able to stay here, work, continue to contribute. Um, it's not only compassionate and right from a moral standpoint, but the impact that dreamers are making on our country right now is tremendous. And to lose them uh, would be a serious detriment to our economy. So like Jenny was saying, I think um, the two aren't mutually exclusive, in fact, in most cases, um, compassionate biblical response on immigration issues actually um, coincides with what is positive for our country from an economic standpoint as well. That's really, that's really well said. Uh, okay, so, so question, question two. Uh, immigration is a politically divisive hot button. Uh, news alert, uh, I don't know if you knew that. So um, in the midst of all of the heated words, um, how do you daily maintain your hope so that you can keep loving and advocating for your immigrant neighbors? Carla? Oh, I saw the hand go up. I saw the hand go up. Would you mind repeating the question? Yes. So, uh, so immigration is a politically divisive hot-button subject. In the midst of all the heated words, how do you daily maintain your hope so that you can keep loving and advocating for your immigrant neighbors? You know, Reed, earlier you and I were having a, a conversation and you mentioned the power that proximity has. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Sometimes we look at things on the news, maybe on media, we disregard it because it doesn't really affect us until you see it happening to someone that's really close to you and then it really truly affects you. And so the way to continue to be 
thinking about these um, issues, not in a political way, but just in a compassionate biblical way is proximity. Get closer to those that are coming in, the immigrants, refugees, get to know them, build a relationship with them. Then you get to really understand their situation, the reasons why they came here, um, the challenges that they have to face, assimilating to the new culture, language barriers. And so I would say proximity. That's really well said. There, there's, I've heard it said too that when, when an issue main, uh, continues to be an issue and not you're dealing with real people, then that's what actually makes it a problem. Like, if we're talking about this as though it's just an issue and not real human beings with stories attached to them, that's very much how it's, it's easy to lose hope and continuing on in that. So, well said. Yeah, I mean, the other thing I would just add to is that I think, um, I mean, being in a community with you all at, right here in Kansas where I'm talking with several you, of you about your perspectives and stories and your passions, that's actually what really gives me hope because I think, you know, when you look at the broader uh, evangelical community in the United States, when you look at polls after polls, the research actually shows that most people think, most white Christians actually believe that immigrants are a burden. And when you look at a lot of the polling, you'll find that white Christians, more than any other category of black Protestants, white Catholics, um, non-religious people are the most likely to think that immigrants are a burden um, or that they threaten American values and customs. And so when I go to communities like this, where I've talked to so many of you about how, you're, you know, what you're doing with your immigrant neighbors and what you're doing to minister to Algerians and others, like that is what gives me hope because I think this community right here is, is go, running counter to the broader narrative within the broader community that Christians like hate immigrants and um, and I don't believe that bears out when I travel to places like this and really meet with all of you. And so I would say keep doing the things that you're doing to get plugged into local opportunities. As Carla was saying, you know, proximity is really what changes the narrative. Um, and as you get to know your immigrant neighbors, I believe that is what should be the foundation of your engagement. And so all of you, I would say, encourage me. Anything else you'd add, Jared? Yeah, I mean, I would just say both of what, what they said, absolutely. Um, I find, you know, at Mission Adelante, we hear the, the noise out there um, when negative things are said and the, the challenges of the situation, but we also have volunteers coming from across the city to serve and to, to teach English and to work with kids. And, and so there is a sense that the church is responding, mm -hmm. um, even though um, not all of the church is responding. And so there's, a, there's definitely hope in that. Um, and then what Carla was saying too, just in the, in the most discouraging times um, with regard to immigration policy and the tone around immigration, um, being with my community, just being together and just knowing, um, gosh, we can, be, we can suffer together in some ways. We can lament together some of the things that are that are happening around us, but we find the sense of, of joy and consolation in the comfort that our community offers to, to one another. That's great. Uh, so this is kind of related to this, and, and we, we saw this in, in the, uh, the wonderful um, documentary, Over is it Overlooked? That's the name of the, the yeah, so that was beautiful. Um, what would you say is the biggest misconception people have about immigrants? And so, I mean, there, there's many we could mention, but what's one of the biggest misconceptions and if you, I'll maybe add to that, maybe uniquely that Christians or the church has um, of immigrants. If you, if you want to add that nuance, you can. But what's one of the biggest misconceptions people have of immigrants? 
I could I could name a list of them. <laughs> Let me count the ways. Um, I mean, I think um, that that immigrants are a burden. I mean, we've been talking about that one, um, that they take more than they give, um, that they don't pay taxes, that, uh, that they are breaking the law, like undocumented immigrants are breaking the law on purpose because they don't have respect for the law. That's a misconception. Um, almost everybody I know, if there was a pathway for them to gain legal status, they would absolutely walk it. There just is no line. You know, there is no pathway for that. So, those are, those are just a handful that come up um, right off the bat when I think about it. Uh, and a lot of that, the misconceptions have to do with either, either false information that, that we're receiving or just a lack of education on, on what our immigration policies really are. I'm um, just the belief that somebody could um, gain legal status if they just like did it the, the right way at this point. Um, that's something that most people think is true. Um, but for most categories of people, even if they've been living here for a long time, there just is, isn't even a way to do that. And so that's, that's just a common mis misconception. I'm sure there's many others that you guys can think of. I agree, Jared. Um, I think the biggest misconception that I've heard is um, that it's very easy to obtain legal status when in fact it's very difficult and oftentimes it, it isn't as easy as it seems. Many times I've heard as well that um, get in line, it'll it, you know it'll be quicker than than you think, but it's not it's not really. I remember when my grandma got her visa to be able to visit us. It took a while for her to be able to get it. In fact, we had already been living here for nearly ten years before my, I got to see my grandma, um, and that's how long it took for her to get her visa. She'd been trying ever since for us to uh, for to see each other one again, and. It took that long for her to get that visa. So yes, it's not easy. It's not just get in line and, and you know, here's your legal citizenship. It's, it's a lot harder than that. Yeah, and oftentimes um, when I talk about the history of immigration in the United States, I do that because I think uh, we sometimes think that our family or our ancestors were morally superior because they didn't bring any laws to come here. And again, I think when we look at the previous generations of immigrants, they're, they operated under a completely different system, and yet they fled the same exact circumstances as immigrants of today are coming. And so yes, we live in a society of laws and structures and policies, but to think that the immigrants of today somehow are morally inferior because you know they're skirting the system, if our ancestors try to come into the current system, most of them would not qualify to come because they're fleeing poverty, they didn't qualify, they didn't have high skills, they didn't have money, and so I just think it's important to remember that because when you know we, many of us go to Central America, Mexico, or overseas and do missions work, and that's really important work. And yet, when these individuals are coming into our community, sometimes I think we can draw a red line in the sand and say, "Well, you're not doing it the right way, or you shouldn't come here." And and I think this reflexive, you know, rule of law um, impulse that a lot of us have as Christians is is I think rule of law is important, but it's not the ultimate. And I say that because, you know, in a lot of places around the world, missionaries skirt the law because they want to transfer Bibles in and smuggle them in to spread the gospel. And, you know, we wouldn't think, well, that's breaking the law because they're doing God's work. But yet I think we use that same, you know, reasoning to morally castigate individuals that may have broken immigration laws. But oftentimes their value set to provide for their families and to feed their families was superior than, you know, a, an old immigration law in the United States. And so um, I just think it's important that we have that kind of 
um, framework as we think about immigration today. Um, and I think that'll help us as we even think about ways to reform our, our current immigration laws. Yeah, that historical perspective. You know, we, we tend to think that that you know, well, immigrants back then are different from immigrants now. But that's that's really helpful, Jenny. Thank you. Um, okay, so this is a question. Um, it's kind of been asked in a couple ways. So uniquely, you know, when we planned this event, um, I, I think it was even before COVID. You know, and so uh, we would we did not know, but God and His providence knew that this would take place during uh, this great refugee resettlement in Afghanistan. And, and so uh, there's questions about how can we help Afghan refugees in Kansas City? And one maybe more specific question that came through was, how do churches and governments currently work together, or how does the church and government work together to support refugee settlement? How can churches get involved in that process? And so maybe that's a broad question or maybe more specific to Kansas City uh, that I would love to hear from you guys. Do you want to give the local um, well, maybe you could talk about it from a broad perspective, and then I yeah. know we have Refuge, Refuge KC coming up to talk yeah. very specifically about that here in just a little bit. Yeah, so right after our panel, there'll be someone who can talk um, to you directly about ways to get involved locally to help the Afghans that are coming in, because again, I do think this is a huge opportunity for the church to step up and really welcome a lot of Afghans that uh, we're seeing um, really desperate to leave Afghanistan and, and are coming right here to Kansas City. Um, and so I would say that I think on a broader level, um, plugging into the, the organization that's going to speak afterwards, just volunteering with them is going to be important to actually um, have a relationship with some Afghan families that are coming here. Um, I would also say on um, a national basis that there continues to be the need for advocacy. And so if you've never contacted your senators um, from Kansas or Missouri to tell them that you support Afghans coming in, that's a huge opportunity to do so. Um, because many of the Afghans that have come in um, actually came in on a very temporary immigration status called parole. And so when the U.S. government only had two weeks to evacuate thousands of people that were vulnerable, the only way they could do it was by granting parole to these Afghans. And so the Afghans are here, and they're in this parole status, which actually expires after two years. And so what we've been advocating for the U.S. government and Congress to pass is a law that would allow Afghan parolees to actually be able to get a green card once they hear it. It doesn't mean they skirt the vetting system because they have to be vetted in order to get a green card, but what it does mean is that the parolees, the Afghan parolees, don't have to apply for asylum, which right now is significantly backlogged. And so we've been actually get, trying to get a Republican co-sponsor to um, actually uh, co-sponsor what's called the Afghan Adjustment Act that would allow Afghan parolees to be able to adjust status here. Um, and we have yet to find one. Uh, Senator Ernst from Iowa is actually um, likely going to be uh, maybe a Republican co-sponsor. Um, but we would love for Senator Moran um, and others um, to, to actually join us to help support these Afghans. So um, if you have an opportunity to talk to your senator or to weigh in, um, please do express support for the Afghan Adjustment Act so that Afghan parolees can adjust status. Um, if you know anything about Cubans that come into the United States, um, if you're Cuban and you come into the U.S., you can automatically basically get a green card. That's what's called the Cuban Adjustment Act. Um, and so, again, we're asking for the same kind of considerations for Afghans that have come um, so that they don't have to apply for asylum and can just get a green card um, since they're here. The only thing I'll add at this point on a local level, um, we are we are receiving Afghan refugees, particularly on the Missouri side of Kansas City. There's um, a few hundred 
uh, people who I've, who've come, I'm, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but the biggest need I think right now is housing. Um, but there are also a lot of other needs, adopting families and such. And I do believe Refugee ca uh, Refuge KC is going to talk more specifically about how to get involved with that in just a few minutes. As well as Catholic Charities, that's another organization we'll share a little yeah. bit of detail on as, as we continue. Yeah. Uh, okay, so here's a question that I think as it, as it pertains to, you know, Jenny, you shared so beautifully. And one, one of my just personal takeaways was the language you were so intentional in saying is that that this, this is an opportunity for the church to not simply share the gospel, but to receive the gospel. Mm -hmm. That there is something about seeing the beauty and the fullness of the good news of Christ through the eyes of immigrant neighbors that tells us something of the beauty of Christ that we can't see when we remain in our kind of homogenous communities. And, that, and that's not to shame us, but it's, anyway, I could, I could preach, I could preach. But uh, <laughs> let, me, let me ask this question. How do we personally love and serve refugees with the hope that they might know Jesus without making it look like we have ulterior motives. Mm. And so, yes, there is a desire for, for people from all places to know Jesus and to be known by him. How do we do so genuinely mm. without it feeling disingenuous and that we have ulterior motives? Yeah. So I would say two things, and this is what I learned just from getting to know Syrian refugees in Baltimore where I live. Um, the first is that, you know, as much as we're sharing about our communities and cultures, it's just as important for us to ask questions about their beliefs and their cultures. And so whenever we're entering into a relationship, it's not just about uh, us telling them everything we know. Are we learners in the process? Are we trying to be curious and seek as much information from them as we are, as we want to share with them? And so if your Afghan neighbor and Afghan refugee family are Muslim, ask them. Ask them what it means to be Muslim. Ask them what it means to believe in the Quran. Be curious about it. It doesn't mean just because you're asking questions that you're going to become Muslim or, or anything. But, you know, ask them what, it, what it's like because it's when you start to understand them and their belief systems and their cultures that I think that's what helps establish a friendship. So there's mutuality there, right, where you're curious and you're learning about their customs and beliefs as much as you're sharing about yours. Um, and the second thing I would say in terms of, in addition to just being curious and asking questions, is really um, to have open invitations. And so I think... A lot of times for us in the church, you know, it is important to invite friends and newcomers to, to church events and to our homes for dinners. And I think having open invitations is so important. And so as your church is having an event or if your community is having a party or you just want to host an Afghan family in your, in your house, um, you know, always have that open invitation there because, you know, that family can easily say no, perhaps. Um, but also having that open invite, they can easily say yes, too. And so... I think making sure that you're constantly inviting and giving them the discretion to say no with what they're comfortable with, I think that's, that's always important as well. Carla, I'm going to put you on the spot. I want to hear from you. <laughs> um, I agree, Jenny. I'd also say that my time spent serving in, at Mission Adelante, I'd say that some of the most beautiful moments have been when I truly get to know people and know their culture and get to know more about them, but also sometimes when they come to learn who Jesus is and um, through, you know, our work sharing the gospel, I think sometimes it's so beautiful because each of our own experiences with Jesus is very unique. And so seeing how um, my refugee neighbor or my immigrant neighbor gets to experience the gospel, gets to learn about Jesus, knows Jesus for even for the first time, it's, it's such a new way for me to think about my faith. It renews my faith. It makes me think about 
um, just different things that I wouldn't have thought about. It's a new perspective. Um, but I would also say even, for example, at Mission Adelante, we have a lot of um, Cuban people that are there with us at our church. And so getting to know them and getting to know how they met Jesus also impacts my faith. And so I go back to that proximity thing, guys, that getting to know people and getting to know their experience, even if they're, like Jenny said, if, even if they're not Christian, getting to know them has experienced and changed my own faith too. Yeah, I'll just add um, just one thought about the idea of loving and evangelism and how those two things interact. And really the question is, is love a strategy of evangelism or is evangelism an aspect of what love looks like? And I think the answer to that question really will determine um, a lot about um, how people receive that and also... um, demonstrates a lot about our own motive. And I would just say, you know, evangelism should flow out of a a loving heart um, towards others. Love shouldn't be a strategy of evangelism. And if it is, then that that will be smelled, that will be detected pretty easily, and it will turn people off, and I think it would be somewhat offensive. So as we engage with people from other places and we're thinking about sharing the gospel, uh, we just have to remember that... um, we have to get the motive right first. And that's, that motive of love is, has got to be primary. It's got to be there over and above everything else. Evangelism without love is, is unloving. Yeah, mm-hmm. well said. All right, I think we have time for one more question. Um, and so I'd lo- there, there's, this is a, a version of this question has come through uh, from several people. And, um, and actually, r- really quick, I want to say, uh, just recommend a potentially even resource. Jenny, you, you mentioned something about getting to know the cultures and even religious backgrounds of, of your neighbors. Um, if you're interested in kind of uh, the theology of this, there's a great book called Save by Faith and Hospitality by Josh Jipp, uh, J-I-P-P. And so beautiful book in laying out the hospitable nature of God, uh, biblically speaking, and then what that looks like and the implications that has for how we uniquely engage in relationships with the religious and cultural other. Phenomenal book, Save by Faith and Hospitality. Kind of, a, kind of a controversial t- uh, title, but a beautiful book I would highly recommend. So, so last question, last question here um, as I get my phone on. Um, a lot of people have asked this, so how can we address and respond to this seemingly growing sense of xenophobia, the fear of the other, the fear of the stranger? How can we address and respond to this seemingly growing sense of xenophobia in our country? What tips or tools would you give so that we can combat this fear that people have, and, and maybe that we have as well. Yeah. Uh, proximity. Carla said it already, I think, that um, just the opportunity to you know, go make a friend who's from a different place, who has a, maybe a different faith, a different culture, and just enjoy friendship together. And so, I mean, if we're trying to combat that, I mean, I think inviting people into that process um, to do that together. Yeah, definitely. Proximity, getting to know one another. And you'll find oftentimes you might say, hey, this person and I don't have anything in common. And then you'll figure out, hey, we have a ton of things in common. And and finding out that friendship, getting to know them better, getting to know more about their culture, you've, you've already done um, a lot to get to know them, and so proximity. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I think this question is so relevant because 
maybe some of us are recalling conversations we had over Christmas or at the dinner table and Thanksgiving where, you know, we're like, oh gosh, my, you know, my relative who's like railing against immigrants and foreigners. Or I, I mean, what was so interesting about this past year in 2021 was that I think with Afghanistan, it really coalesced this like broad spectrum of opinion that, that really was unprecedented because I think from both conservatives and liberals and you know across the spectrum everyone was saying we have to welcome these afghan refugees and so i think you know that really was a foundation from which you can have start having some of these conversations and you know i think if your relative or friend is a follower of jesus um you know i would always go back to that because i think you know a lot of people who are afraid of foreigners or afraid of muslims or others really, I think, are afraid because they've never met a Muslim before. And so if you don't have that relationship informing your perspective and all you're hearing from someone else, you know, on the news or somewhere else is, oh, you know, they're trying to establish Sharia law and all these things that are probably not true, you know, nothing is really going to combat that fear unless that person really gets to know someone who is of that, you know, person, like that person they fear. And so, um, again, I, I do think, you know, going back to scriptures, and reminding people of the stories of people you've met, I think that can change that per person's perspective. Um, you can give them a little bookmark that says, you know how much the Bible says about immigrants or immigration? Um, you know, share a book with them and, and challenge them to read more from a different perspective. Um, you know, there's a lot of resources out there, but I think always pivoting back to stories is always so important because, again, I think there's nothing that's gonna counter fear um, as much as a personal story, because they are not going to be able to argue with your experience of, of being friends with someone that they fear. So, yeah. Well said, well said. I, Carl and I were mentioning this earlier, but I, I've, I've heard it said that, that distance breeds suspicion, mm -hmm. proximity breeds empathy. And, and that's, that's true relationally, geographically, and so and that is, I mean, it's a powerful word. It's a powerful word and, and a relevant one. So uh, will you join me in just saying thank you to our, our panelists? Um,